0: Let's say that you are comparing two things of the same kind. How do you tell which is better? Take music, for example. The so-called modernist churches might look at music and with a a newer-is-better mentality, right? Some extremists will go to the point of saying we refuse to sing any songs that are less than two years old or that are older than two years. And on the other hand, you have some churches with a traditionalist mentality that really have a, more of an older is better mindset. And these kinds of churches, if you're going to more of an extreme, you might say that they would refuse to sing songs that are less than 200 years old, right? These are kind of the two extremes and two mindsets, two ways of, of looking at something to decide which is better. We need to remember when we look at the book of Hebrews that the original audience of this book was in danger of leaving Jesus and returning to what they had left behind, the Levitical priesthood, the Jerusalem temple, the animal sacrifices and the law of Moses. And these people seem to have a bit of a traditionalist mentality. After all, the law of Moses was around for about 1400 years before Jesus. So, why introduce something new if what you already have is good? Today, as we're looking, you can turn in your Bibles if you have them to Hebrews chapter 8. The author is going to respond to this question from both a traditionalist and more of a modernist perspective, and he will show that however you slice it, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And then we'll see why. But let's start out by just jumping in, and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 8, the first half, verses 1 through 6. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this one, too, had to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. The place where they serve is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle, for he says, see that you make everything according to the design shown you on the mountain. But now... I love that phrase, by the way. Every time you hear that in the Bible, but now... That's when you're about to be blindsided by something amazing. But now, Jesus has obtained a superior ministry. Since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. Christianity actually began, believe it or not, as a subsection of Judaism. The original Christians really didn't see themselves as doing something that was entirely different than the, the religion of Israel. In fact, the whole Old Testament had pointed to Jesus, and that was one of the main points. But as Christians began to accept Gentiles into the church, and as the church began to, to change and leave some of the Jewish traditions behind, some Jewish believers began to feel very uncomfortable. The law, after all, had been around for over a thousand years. How could something as newfangled as this Christianity possibly be superior to the law of Moses? After all, Jesus didn't have the right lineage. He couldn't even serve as a priest in the Jerusalem temple. And they needed to have a priest who could go between them and God. And you know what? They were right. Jesus couldn't be a priest he had no right to serve in the original Jerusalem temple, but he did have a right to serve in a different temple. The Israelite priests, you see, they were, were serving in a temple, but they weren't serving in the temple, not in the best temple. The Jerusalem temple they served in was actually... A copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the original. The temple that they were worshipping in at the time had been built by Herod just a little before Jesus was born. And that temple was a copy and an expansion of the second temple that was built after they returned from exile out of the nation and they came back. And that temple was built 70 years after the destruction of Solomon's temple, which had been built around 900 BC. And that temple was a copy of the tabernacle, which was constructed 500 years before. And not even the tabernacle, made, the very first tabernacle made by Moses, was the original, because even Moses was told do what you're doing based off the pattern, the original design that I'm showing you. Let me show you what happens, by the way, when you get a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Earlier this week, I made a simple picture. I made a house with some mountains on it and a sun in the background. And then I gave it to someone who studied it for about five to ten seconds. I took the picture away, and then I had them make a copy as best they could from memory. Now, you look here from this picture to the second one. It looks pretty similar, right? A lot of the details are are there. Well, let's see this transition from the second to the third. Still looks pretty comparable, doesn't it? Maybe a little bit different, but pretty similar. How about here? Maybe a little different, but you can see how you you get one and you move to the next one. How about number five? Again, the transition from number four to number five, pretty similar, isn't it? And then you get finally to number six. Now, all of the transitions from one picture to the very next one is pretty similar. And you can kind of see small changes are made from here to there. But what happens if we compare the original to the final? (laughs) There's a pretty big change, isn't it? Now... I'm not going to say that my picture is better, necessarily. You can see that I am not the most qualified artist in the world. But even so, you can see how when you have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, especially when what you're starting with is the original true temple of God in heaven, then as you move further and further away, you're losing more and more of the original details that were intended. even if Jesus couldn't be a Levitical priest in the Jerusalem temple. That temple was made, it was designed to be a copy, a shadow of the true original temple in heaven where Jesus served. And the Levitical priests were therefore made as well to be shadows of the reality of the true priest, Jesus. For the traditionalist, They can see that Hebrews shows that Jesus is the true original priest, serving in the true original temple. And this matters for them because they thought that it would be, it was downgrading to get rid of the Jerusalem temple and the Levitical priesthood and to move to Jesus. They would say, what, what is wrong with what we already had? And they said, if you are moving to Jesus, you are not moving forward to something lesser. You're actually moving back to the original, to what God first wanted for us. But not only was Jesus the true original, his way was simply better. Israel thought that the law given by Moses was the bee's knees. But even the Old Testament spoke. To its limitations and the need for something better. Let's read what the author says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But showing its fault, God said, Look, the days are coming, says Yahweh. You'll see it says the Lord if you're reading through in your own, but it's referencing the Hebrew, which gave the original name of Yahweh. So that's what I'm going with. The days are coming, says Yahweh, when I'll complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it won't be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they didn't continue in my covenant, and I had no regard for them, says Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I'll establish with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I'll put my laws in their minds. And I'll inscribe them on their hearts. And I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And there'll be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen or each one to teach his brothers, saying, No, Yahweh, since they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest. For I'll be merciful toward their evil deeds, and their sins I'll remember no longer. When he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now, it's growing obsolete and aging is about to disappear. That's interesting, isn't it? We need to know that the law of Moses is incredibly valuable for you and for me. But we need to know what it is intended for and what it is not intended for. Like a tailor-made suit, the law was specifically given to Israel, not to any other nation. Read through the book sometime. See the kind of laws that are in there, and you will see the language of the law binds it to a specific geography, a specific time, a specific culture, even to weather patterns of ancient Israel. The law really, truly can only be perfectly applied... To a nation that is in the Bronze Age, in the Near East, in the land of Canaan, in a patriarchal society, an agrarian society, and a society that was still waiting for the promised Messiah to bring the fullness of God's blessings. Otherwise, what, what difference would it really make today for God to promise the, the early and the latter rains, Right? What difference would it make if it it talked about certain promises about protection of walls around cities? It doesn't matter in a society like today. It was custom designed for Israel back then in a way that even Israel today, it wouldn't make the same kind of sense. If God gave the law to them today, it would be written very differently. Now for 1400 years, the law was the best gift God could have given Israel. But as a permanent guide for everyone in all circumstances, all cultures, for all time, to relate to God, to have a changed heart, to have a secure relationship with God, it was woefully inadequate. Now why is that? Was the law itself imperfect? Did God intend the law to change the hearts of all people for all time? And then when it didn't work with Israel and when the culture shifted and changed away, God's like, whoopsie, sorry, my mistake. Is that what God did? Absolutely not. It was never meant for that purpose. And you and I need to understand this, because it is so important for us to understand the whole rest of the Bible and how you and I relate to God. You see, God gave the law through Moses for one primary and two secondary reasons. The ultimate purpose of the law was to prime Israel for the promised Messiah. To conserve the nation and to prepare them for Jesus. And it did in two ways. First, The law acted like guardrails in a bowling lane. How many of you need guardrails if ever you go on a bowling lane? Anyone? Anyone? I remember going as a middle schooler and and I definitely needed those guardrails because it, it helped me to stay in the middle so I knocked down at least a couple pins and I got my bowling ball to the end because there wasn't really a chance of going too far to the right or to the left because if I had been bowling without those guardrails, what happens? It goes off to the side. It becomes a gutter ball and it rolls the rest of the way and you get nothing. You didn't even make it to the end. The law protected Israel from itself, from its own sinfulness, by whenever they strayed too far, bringing a judgment on them. And the judgment was harsh, but the judgment was still gracious, because it was primarily a judgment on unbelieving Israel, and a protection of the believers, so the nation could return back to God. It acted like guardrails. But at the same time, the law also acted like a mirror. By presenting a standard, showing what kind of character God had. It was a, it was a knowledge of good and evil. So that people could say, I think I need to be good enough for God in order to earn His love. And God could say, well, here's a standard of good and evil. How do you think you compare? Have you ever heard someone say, just look at the Ten Commandments, how many have you broken in the last week, let alone your whole lives? No one holds up to the mirror of God's law. It allowed Israel to compare themselves to a standard and just realize how far they fell short so that they could cry out for a better way to relate to God. And both of these primed them ultimately to prepare them for the coming Messiah, for Jesus Himself. Now, so far we've talked all about how the law related to Israel, but guess what? This is where the point at which it comes back full circle to you and me. We may not be in danger of trying to approach God with animal sacrifices. How many people thought when they were killing deer this season that they were doing that... To make themselves right with God? Absolutely no one. That doesn't happen today. There hasn't been a temple for 2,000 years. But far too often, Christians will define their Christian life in light of the law of Moses. They'll start with Moses' law as a foundation... And then they'll say, well, some of these don't apply to us. And they'll pick and tear off bits of the law that they don't feel apply to themselves anymore, leaving behind a kind of skeleton ripped up of what the law originally was, and then they'll they'll paste on the commands of Jesus onto it. There's a whole lot of them, so they'll really just kind of pick and choose whichever one really suits their their thoughts at the moment. And they'll say, ah, this is our new Christian law by which we judge ourselves to see whether or not we are good enough for God. And you end up with a law painted with the words of Jesus and calling it the Gospel. But you know what it is? It's new cloth patched onto an old garment. New wines poured into old wineskins. It's not what Jesus wants for us. Is that is how we define our relationship with Christ, I'm sorry to use these words, but I need to, because it truly is pitiful, it's miserable, and it doesn't work. Now we should, we must, We do have a great respect for the whole Bible, including the Law of Moses, found in the first five books of the Bible. Why else would we have spent multiple series and multiple months working through these books? They are incredibly valuable to show how God has worked with people in the past, and it gives us insights into the character of the same God who relates to us today. But understand this. We do not relate to God. Through law. God does not relate to us through law. For the purpose that it was made, the law of Moses is perfect. Absolutely perfect. It kept Israel in anticipation for the answer to sin that would be found in Jesus. But those of us who have trusted in Jesus, believers, are no longer under the law. And we cannot, we must not use it as a ruler to measure our relationship with God. Toward that end, as a measure to judge our relationship with God, you and I should be describing the words in the same language that the author of Hebrews is using. You know what words the author of Hebrews uses for this mindset towards the law? He calls it weak, useless, obsolete, aging, And about to disappear. His words. God's words. And therefore also should be our words. So if we don't have the law of Moses, what do we have? Jesus does not leave us with a vacuum. He gives us a system that defines how we relate to God. But it's under a different title than law. It's called grace. To a law-minded person, grace is outright scandalous. Why? Because of its very nature. Grace showers, it soaks, it drenches totally undeserving people with the love of God. Now, most of us understand our initial acceptance into Christianity is by grace apart from works, right? We, we all kind of get that. First idea. But did you know that it is also by grace and not by law that we grow and mature as believers? Let me show you. The law measures maturity through visible obedience. The law will say, if you're doing the right things, or you know, at least if you can look acceptable, right? According to my standards, at least, you're in. I accept you. You're one of us. Congratulations. But when you find yourself in a group that is defined by law, you never feel safe, do you? You never feel safe with the people that you are around. Because you know that every failure you have, everyone else will remember. And if you fail too much in that group, you will be kicked out of the group or prove that you were never really in the group to begin with. The law has a good desire, a wonderful desire, that we look more like Jesus. But it does so, it tries to change people's behavior from the outside in using fear. Fear. And it is not how you were designed to grow in your relationship with Christ. And because it's not how you were designed to grow in your relationship with Christ, this mindset will always ultimately fail. Either it will fail because you realize you can't live up to its standards and you say, woe is me, I guess Jesus doesn't love me and you walk away. Or because you ignore the standards that you can't reach and you focus on the ones you can And you gain a sense of pride in I'm so great. Look at how many times I read my Bible. Look at how much I give. Look at how much I do. I'm so great. Jesus must love me. Either way, law fails to help you to grow. But where law fails, grace abounds. Grace doesn't say you'll be loved once you're changed. It says, I want to change you with unconditional love. Grace says, Romans 4, to the one who does not work, but believes the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. How many works does such a person have? Can someone answer me? How many works does this righteous person have? None. None. Thank you. And yet they're righteous. Totally unfair, as my kids would say. (laughs) And yet so beautiful and so fitting. God's grace changes your core identity at the first moment you believe His promise of everlasting life. And from that moment, you have God's life in you regardless of anything you have done and anything you will do. Sometimes we may say, oh, God has forgiven me X number of years of sins that I have done, but we don't know about the sins that we will do. And oftentimes, for some of us, our worst sins are still in our future. But guess what? When Jesus died, all of your sins were in the future. And He paid for them all. From the moment you have eternal life, you keep it regardless of anything you have done and anything you will do. But guess what? Grace is not done then. Grace doesn't stop in that moment. Grace continues for your whole life telling you who you truly are now in Jesus, calling you to believe and enjoy the blessings that God can barely wait to watch you enjoy. Did you catch that measurement of maturity? The law, we said, measures maturity through visible obedience. But for grace, maturity is measured by how much you believe what Jesus tells you. How much you believe what God reveals to you. This is Christianity, guys. This is what it's about. It's not about a theology. It's not about a set of rules. Christianity is a dynamic relationship with a person who wants you to listen to him, to believe him, and to enjoy him. If all that you think Christianity is is opening a book and studying it like a textbook, you're missing out on the relationship with a person. If all that you think that Christianity is is following a set of rules so that this person, this God, doesn't get too angry with you, you're missing out on the joy. And that's why grace is there. Now, some people will say that this message, grace, gives a free pass for people to live a sinful life. That if you preach grace too much, grace will encourage people to be more sinful. Neither I, nor the author of Hebrews, nor God would agree. As is said in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, perhaps that says it's best. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What, what brings salvation to all people? Can someone shout it out? Grace. Hmm, grace. Training us to reject godless ways and worldly desires. Wait, what trains us to reject worldly ways? Grace. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Wait, what trains us to live those kinds of lives? Grace. Thank you, guys. Yes, grace is what trains us to do all of this. It is what changes your life in a way that law never can. We absolutely should grow more Christ-like over time. Hebrews gives us plenty of reasons from sharing the eternal rule and reign to Christ to a greater degree, to our rest and peace here on earth. But however much your church, wherever, whichever church you may have come from in the past, however much it may have shouted law at you in the past, God doesn't. God doesn't shout law at us. He whispers His grace. A grace which changed your eternal future the moment you believed Christ Jesus for the first time. And grace which continues to change you day by day as you learn to trust, not in discipline, Not in determination, not in religious ritual, not in a supportive family or a steady job or a healthy nation, but as you learn to trust in what God tells you is true. Isn't that good news? And so each one of us, Each and every one of us in our own hearts and our minds needs to make a decision. You and I must make a decision about how we relate to God as Christians. You can look to law, judging yourselves according to outward apparent obedience. Or we can lean on grace learning to trust and believe what God says is true of us, and then learning to enjoy what we have in Christ as we live as if what God reveals is true. I beg you, make the right choice. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a lot to take in. Help us to learn to stop trying to earn your acceptance through a kind of law and instead to believe, to trust, to rest in your grace, especially as we prepare to remember the grace you showed us on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.